right. Welcome to TWIST. This week in sustainability, my name is Felicia Etzcorn. I'm a professor of chemistry at Virginia Tech. And I'm Jamie Ferguson. I'm a chemistry professor at Emory and Henry College in Southwest Virginia. And our guest today is Dr. Carol Kwiatkowski. Great. And I'll just ask Dr. Kwiatkowski to introduce herself and give us her educational background and, and all the different involvement she's had with health and public policy. Okay, well, I'm currently the Senior Science and Policy Associate at the Green Science Policy Institute, which was founded by Arlene Bloom and the, um, works out of California. I got my start in the environmental health field when I met uh, Dr. Theo Colborn, another environmental hero who um, is widely credited with being one of the founders of the field of endocrine disruption. And yeah. I started working with her in 2007. And basically that, that is what switched me from the field I was in where I was studying um, AIDS prevention, the transmission of HIV, and I switched to environmental health and started studying with Dr. Colborn. And, I, and then I became her executive director and ran that organization for about a dozen years. So now I'm with Green Science Policy Institute, and I also have an adjunct faculty appointment at North Carolina State University. Yeah, that's fantastic. You want to tell us about your educational background? So I got my undergraduate degree at the College of William & Mary in Virginia. Most people know it because Williamsburg, the historic town, is there. And I got my graduate degree, my master's and PhD in uh, cognitive science at the University of Denver. What stimulated us to contact Carol was a paper that was recently published in Environmental Science and Technology. And it's a paper about the, the concept of regulating all perfluorinated alkyl substances, which we'll call PFAS, as a class. So PFAS as a class, not separate each. You know, the, the idea of regulating chemicals one at a time, each one taking, you know, forever for the EPA to sort of establish safe levels and what's okay and what's not and do all the testing. That concept has, I think, ha had its day and it's archaic, personally. I think it's archaic. So I was very attracted to this paper. So I thought we'd walk through first some of the properties, the function, what products use, and, and I can share my screen with you. So, you know, that might help. I just pulled quotes from the paper, basically. So why don't you first just give us the concept of class-based management? And, and if you know any of the history of regulating things like endocrine disruptors or, you know, perchlorinated substances as a class. Okay. The class-based approach, I think, has its roots in the Montreal Protocol. Um, many years ago. And the idea was that you manage the entire class of chemicals and not um, try to address them, as you said, one at a time that takes years um, and years for uh, toxicity to be established and their uh, environmental properties, like whether how persistent they are, how mobile they are in the environment, persistent meaning how long they last in the environment, those sorts of things. And so um, the Montreal Protocol was for what chemicals? We have some young listeners who may not be familiar with that. Yes. And to be honest with you, I'm not that familiar with it either, but it, it is what um, it, it is part of the history of the, the class-based approach. And it was for um, fluorocarbon or not fluorocarbon, sorry, CFCs. C yeah. Chlorofluorocarbons yeah. for ozone depletion. Yes. For ozone and it was depletion. 1987 or 1988, I think. Yes. It was in the late 80s. Exactly. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that gets mentioned in, in the history of the class-based approach, that this has been done before. But in fact, there's been management of other groups of chemicals as well, many, many different approaches that way, where they'll, they'll sort of carve out any number of chemicals, it could be six, it could be 20, and try to manage them as an entire class. Phthalates is one example where they've grouped several phthalates and 
and um, regulated them. Sometimes they're focused on certain chemicals that are in certain products. So maybe you're looking at managing all PFAS in flame retardants as sort of a class-based approach, but they're, they're usually subgroups and they're smaller groups of chemicals and it's not really addressing the whole issue. The problem that is really leading to the need for the class-based approach is that we're in a situation where people refer to it as chemical whack-a-mole. So one chemical pops up and we realize this chemical has been around a long time. It's like a, the mole pops his little head out of the ground and says, hey, I'm toxic. And so you whack it, you, you try to manage it, control exposure. You know, there's not too many chemicals we can say we've actually banned, but you might ban it. And then the chemical manufacturers are eager to find a, what's called a drop-in replacement, where it's a chemical where they can just continue to use the same processes and machinery and everything to create the chemicals. And it's an easy substitute. And often that's a chemical from the same class. And it's just one that we know very little about. And so it's what we call a regrettable substitution. So because it takes, it, it takes years to determine that that chemical also is toxic or um, harmful to the environment. And you know, you get your, you whack that mole down and another one pops up in its place. So this, you know, constantly chasing the issue of harmful chemicals has got us to the point where we are now where the whole world is polluted with lots of harmful chemicals and we haven't done nearly enough to manage them to protect people's health. So this class-based approach is saying that, that we need to look at the entire class or at least very large subgroup. Yeah. Figure out how to carve out a reasonable determination of a class. Defining a class is, is kind of a, a big issue. I also think the Stockholm Treaty is a step in the right direction that regulates POPs. Per, and the nice pops. thing about it is it's POPs are um, persistent organic pollutants. Thank you, Jamie. She, she keeps me on the straight and narrow. and POPs are, but the cool thing about the Stockholm Treaty was that, for example, they are able to add new chemicals. So when I did the latest update of my book on green chemistry, they had included perfluorooctanoic acid and perfluorooctanoyl sulfate, sulfonate. So, so, you know, it's not the same thing as regulating the entire class of PFAS, but at least it's saying persistent organic pollutants are bad and we're gonna jump on this right away. So, okay, let's move on and talk about the properties of PF PFAS. Well, the most well-known properties of PFAS because they are it's used in so many consumer products that we enjoy on a daily basis are that they're waterproof, greaseproof, leads them to be stain-proof. And so for those properties, they show up in like outdoor clothing, you know, waterproof proof clothing, grease-proof food packaging, you know, so that your hamburger doesn't leak grease when you get it at a fast food restaurant. Stain-proof PFAS show up or were showing up until they got rid of them in carpets, things like that. A lot, a lot of different products. So I kind of mixed up your properties and your products there, but there's a lot of other functions of PFAS as well. They're used in a lot of uh, manufacturing as dispersants and friction reducers, surfactants and uh, emulsifiers, things like that. So they're, um, they're in building materials like roofing, paints and coatings. They're in personal care products, electronics. There's just, there's so many uses. There was a paper written recently on trying to discover the uses of PFAS. This is one of the problems is that the only people that know the uses are the chemical manufacturers who sell them to the product manufacturers and they don't disclose the uses. So this scientific paper found 200 different uses of PFAS through their work. Wow. So I, I kind of want to jump in there and, and just mention that um, when, when I attended a green solvents conference um, back in like 2008, uh, the major classes of solvents seem to be aqueous, organic, ionic liquids were, were you know, another potential thing. Some supercritical CO2 was, was a potential thing, but then fluorinated solvents were their own 
you know, had had a big place at the conference, and it was all about different types of chemical solvents. And I mean, the fact that they are so unique as a class, mm -hmm. um, I think speaks to why they find their way into everything. The fact, you know, there's oil and water don't mix. Oh yeah, well, oil and water and fluorinated uh, organics, all three of those don't, you know, don't mix. So we have this entirely different ball game to, you know, that I think chemical industry has has kind of had a field day mixing and matching with other types of chemistry. And now it's a problem of like, how do we get, how, how do we put the genie back inside the box? <laughs> because yeah, they're sort of seen as miracle chemicals in a, in a yeah. lot of ways that they can repel both oil and water. Yeah. And so that's why they found so many uses. Yeah. So I think for the consumers, um, the two things, and, and you might have to be as old as I am to remember Gore-Tex, but Gore I still have a, a Gore-Tex rain suit. Gore-Tex was thought to be really cool because it was a breathable waterproof. And the way they did this was they essentially made Teflon and then they stretched it and created all these micro pores, but it was too small for the... It was too small for water droplets to get through, but big enough for water vapor to get out. So sweat, you could sweat in them, you know. So Gore-Tex was really this hot new camping equipment, you know, thing. And I even had a tent made out of it at one point. And I don't think they do that anymore. I have a lot of Gore-Tex <laughs> in my closet as well. Yeah, I think I thought Gore-Tex was still around, yeah. Okay, and Jamie's much younger than I am. No, my dad was bragging about, you know, Gore-Tex winter jackets, you know, as early as, or as late as college or so, so. Yeah, so this is a fairly recent development, but the other thing that a lot of people are still familiar with, because pots and pans last a long time, Teflon, Teflon pots and pans. Yeah. My bread maker still has, I've tried so hard to eliminate cookware with Teflon coating. And, you know, it just keeps reappearing in different places. It's like, stop it, people, you know. We'll talk a, a little bit later maybe about how to get how to get it out of your kitchen. If I can jump in there, I just have a, a question for Carol, since you're kind of an expert on PFAS materials. Are we past the, the hopefully we're past the peak of incorporating perfluorinated stuff into chemical products, but what would you say was the heyday? I feel like it's been in the last three decades or something that perfluorinated materials have really made yeah. their way into so many things. Is that... Am I right on that? Well, they, they they go back, you know, Teflon goes back to the 50s or, you know, even earlier when they actually sort of discovered it and then started putting it into products. And so it was around for many decades. And then I think that it did start to sort of explode into all the, all the different products later at the end of the last century. So it's, you know, now here we are 2021. It's, I don't know if we're at the peak. I really don't. <laughs> oh, I hope we are. It's in the last 30 years, you know, that we've, it, it, because we're just discovering it. You know, they started out saying, putting together databases, the OECD in Europe, the Office of Economic Cooperative Development has a list of PFAS, EPA has a list also, and one minute there's 4,000 and the next minute there's six, and then there's nine, you know, like they just keep finding more different PFAS that are used in different ways. And they don't all have, you know, registered cast numbers, but they're discovering them. So, you know, it's, it's again, there's so little transparency from the chemical manufacturers to the government or to people that we don't really know if, what their plans are. I don't think that they are not at all letting go of the fluorine carbon bond, you know, as a, a chemistry, as the base chemistry. They're trying to find other substitutes that are still based on that. You know, they're, uh, so I don't know that we're on the downside, except for the fact that there is so much attention being paid to them right now from both advocacy organizations that are fighting against their use, as well as governments that are starting to respond and, and to address it. Well, and then there was that movie, Hollywood is even, um, Mark Ruffalo was in it and I can never- Dark Waters. Dark Waters, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
that's a really good movie, folks. If you haven't, you know, heard about it, it's it's a great movie. I've hinted at this, but PFAS are persistent, and that means they last. You know, the, um, it is what it says. They accumulate or concentrate in the environment. Concentration is a big deal. Bioconcentration. So, you know, when the cows get fed water that might be contaminated with PFAS, then, you know, and then the people eat the cows, then it concentrates sometimes by a factor of hundreds with each step in the chain because they drink a lot of water in their life and it concentrates in the fat. Actually, uh, we'll go into this in a little bit, but they concentrate sort of everywhere in the human body. They tend to be in, in, in organs with high blood flow. They circulate in the blood. So the liver is a big source. And that was one of the first you know, problems they started looking at was liver. Mm-hmm. I just saw, I just was reading a paper this morning that came out in protein science where they had a crystal structure and human serum albumin is the protein in our blood serum that binds to fatty acids and carries them around in our body. And PFAS basically takes all this, it binds to all the same spots that fatty acids do. And it's, it's a really interesting structure. They have the x-ray crystal structure of this protein with both myristic acid, which is a 14 carbon fatty acid and perfluorooctanoic acid bound to this protein. And it's, it's awful. It's awful. That's why it's in our blood. That's why it ends up, like you said, in all the organs that are heavily vascularized. So from that paper, because I looked at that too, and it was just saying that it bound with high affinity to human serum albumin, which is the vehicle to get transports fats around in your body. And so if it binds really well, then what happens? Like, how, do, do they know why it causes liver toxicity? Is the liver like trying to oxidize it and it gets stuck at some point? Or do you know? It probably, it probably does inhibit like the cytochrome. I didn't get deep in this. So I, this is pure speculation. But I do think that your liver is always trying to oxidize anything that is a fatty substance to try to get rid of it. And sometimes that goes all badly. So there was a paper a while back, I think it was in the Journal of Medicinal Chemistry, that talked about fluorinated medicines. So they aren't PFAS. These are selectively like one fluorine on an aromatic ring to give it greater medicinal activity. But they did find that on occasion, these are processed in the body, probably in the liver, to release hydrofluoric acid, which is really bad for you know, it binds calcium very tightly. And so it can end up in your bones. This is why they put fluoride in your teeth, in your toothpaste to make your bones stronger, your teeth stronger, but in your bones, it can actually eat away at the calcium. And it it just can be really disruptive. So hydrofluoric acid is a, a potentially bad side product from metabolism of PFAS. I haven't looked into it, so I don't really know. We do some speculating. <laughs> well, I, I mean, so my background is, is ionic liquids chemistry where uh, perfluorinated anions are really useful anions because they're so electrochemically stable. And what I imagine these materials, these surfactant, amphiphilic regions, nonpolar and polar regions, materials that I, I, I imagine that they're fairly resistant to, I mean, that's why they're, they're persistent, again, is they're resistant to chemical degradation or biochemical degradation, both, then they, I wonder what they do in a, I just assume that they partition into biological membranes 
and yep yep do they behave like a separate phase do they sort of phase partition if there's a critical amount of them in a biological membrane and is that somewhere that cholesterol likes to hang out if it increases the concentration of cholesterol as one of your cited papers said that it elevated levels of cholesterol is it yeah. is it that yeah. kind of thing like do they sort of partition it or is there anybody studying perfluorinated surfactants in in phospholipid membranes like how do you study that mechanistically you are asking really good questions and to my knowledge these have questions have not been answered or even addressed uh, it, for in a large part the mechanisms by which PFAS you know, exert their toxicity in the body are very poorly understood. I've seen very few mechanistic papers, in fact, and I've been working for a couple of years on a database to pull together all the toxicity research that's been done on a subset of PFAS. We chose 29 substitutes um, for PFOA and PFOS or you know, the, the newer, shorter chain um, PFAS. And we started um, applying systematic review methods to look at those, to gather all the appropriate studies and to extract data from them and put them in this database that we're going to be releasing in a couple of weeks. And there's very little mechanistic, you know, there's a lot of studies that look at, you know, what are they, the epidemiology, what are they doing in humans? And then there's some studies in rats and mice and some other species and they've looked at them in zebrafish and that sort of thing. And then we also looked at in vitro studies, but not a whole lot of, they just haven't even been studied that long, mm-hmm. right? you know, to, be, to get to that level where people are asking those sorts of questions. And that's crazy. In fact, that's, it's kind of a rabbit hole for scientists. You know, scientists love that. Oh my gosh. Like you guys are just like, so excited. Like, well, what about how do they do this? And how do they do that? And, you know, you could, you could study them forever, figuring that out. And the approach to this from, you know, working from a, a nonprofit perspective where we're trying to look at policy as well is to say, look, we know enough about them to know that they are having all these different effects in the body. Like we've talked about liver, but also they've, they've been shown to be associated with testicular and kidney cancer and endocrine disruption, particularly of the thyroid. There's immune system effects. There was even a really recent study that looked at one particular PFAS and its association with a, a more severe course of COVID-19. So now there's a lot of people who are interested in looking at how these chemicals might be adding extra harm to the, to the COVID issue. And um, you said cholesterol and there's developmental effects. So it's a whole range of different things they're doing. And we could spend a couple decades trying to understand exactly what they do in the body. And I'm sure some people will do that. But that's where we're saying that we know that they have the propensity for these health effects. We also know that they're so persistent that they're referred to as forever chemicals. You know, they're just, they just stay there. It's like you're, you're putting drops of something in a bucket and there's no hole in the bucket. So they just stay and you just keep adding more and more and more. And that's what we're doing right now. We're just adding more and more. So saying they're persistent is really saying that we're just increasing the levels in the environment. We're increasing the levels in people. And until we stop doing that, we're increasing the risk of harm. And so both in humans and in, you know, wildlife, Let's talk about exposure. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I think actually I'd like to just take a moment to put in a plug for the, the precautionary principle, which says when you know enough, just stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. basically you don't have to know everything. You don't have to have LD50s for each chemical in the class. You don't have to know what the mechanism of toxicity is. You just have to know that it's toxic and that everything like it, in this case, everything that's a PFAS is going to be a bad actor. It's likely to be a bad actor. You know, it's hard. Very highly likely, very highly likely. Just from a chemical perspective, the carbon fluorine bond is incredibly strong. Mm -hmm. There are not carbon fluorine bonds in natural chemicals. So we don't, to my knowledge, have microbes or sunlight doesn't break them down. We don't have a way to break them down. So I, I would argue that the precautionary principle applies here almost more than any other class of pollutants that I've thought about in my life. So- 
Mm-hmm. So let's talk about exposure. At some point, I'd like to ask Carol uh, to talk about where push comes to shove in de- defining what the essential uses of PFAS materials yeah. are. So we'll talk about where they show up commonly now, but I'd like to, to hear your perspective on, you know, you're having those conversations, those hard conversations with manufacturers, industry, you know, where are they most essential? Well, you can go ahead and that, go ahead with this question. Yeah, I think it's related. And I was, I've been sort of eager to get that part out there too, because it was an important part of the paper that we wrote. So the way that we've been addressing potentially harmful chemicals up till now in the regulatory sense is to study them, determine if they're toxic, and then determine how we might reduce people's exposure to them if we if we find out that they're toxic. But when you've got such a large class of chemicals and you, there's no way you're going to be able to study all of them, people have been frustrated for a long time with this process, decades. But now there's this approach called the essential uses approach, which is very much in line with the precautionary principle. And it says if, if it's not necessary and you know it might be harmful, then perhaps we shouldn't use it. <laughs> so the push is to get rid of all non-essential uses of PFAS. So we talked about how they're just showing up everywhere and in everything. There's a, a lot of those things they probably aren't even necessary. You know, you have a wonder chemical and you start putting it in everything because you think it's great, but it's not necessary for those chemicals. So if you remove anything that's not essential for health or safety or the truly the functioning of society, and you get rid of all of those chemicals first, all of the PFAS that are used in products that aren't essential in that sense, and then you take the ones that are essential and say, do any of these have safer alternatives? And the ones that have safer alternatives, you take that batch and you use those alternatives instead of the PFAS. And then the ones that are left are the ones that are essential for health, safety, or the functioning of society. And there's no safer alternative at this point. So we're not saying ban all PFAS right now, because that would cause some problems. We don't know exactly what the problems are, but that would. And so you follow this essential uses approach, and then you're left with a a much smaller subset of of functions of PFAS that you can work on replacing with safer alternatives. So it's not even saying, well, okay, we're good. We'll just use PFAS for these. It's like, we'll use PFAS for these until we come up with better alternatives. So the long-term goal is to get rid of them all, but it's a process. I'm running into a situation where my chemistry colleagues are proposing to make new PFAS to use as, for example, electrolytes for batteries for lithium-ion batteries and for supercritical carbon dioxide dry cleaning of clothing. And I just get really frustrated because it's like, let's not come up with new uses. Yeah. We we don't. Well, see, now both of those are, are contained uses, though. If, uh, if, you could, if you could limit fluorine. No, b- batteries are not. <laughs> batteries get loose. Batteries. And you have to, well, if you're going to talk about exposure, which you had, had started to touch on, you have to think of the entire life cycle. So first yeah. of all, you've got the product man, or the chemical manufacturing. And anytime you're manufacturing PFAS, there's a lot of waste that contains PFAS. So people talk a lot about polymers, you know, these long chains of, of PFAS molecules that are hard, it's harder for them to get into biological systems and cause harm. So the industry likes to say they're not harmful. But when you make polymers, there's a tremendous amount of waste that contains smaller PFAS that are harmful. So there's all of that waste that's going on. And that's a lot of what, that's what was in the movie Dark Waters. There's other, a lot of other hot spots around the country and around the, around the world where PFAS are manufactured and that's a problem. They get into the water, they get all over. They're in Alaska, they're in you know crazy places far away from where they were created. They transfer through the air as well. So there's that chemical manufacturing part. And then you have the products that are made with them. And some of them, like you said, have more potential for exposure than others. Obviously food packaging is one that's of, of great concern. But but maybe in batteries, that's not an exposure that many people are going to interact with directly. 
But then what happens when those batteries get disposed of? You know, they put wherever they do them, you know, batteries are a, a case where maybe they do actually dispose of them in a way that doesn't leach out anywhere. But a lot of other things made out of PFAS are going to be in landfills. Landfills leach and then it gets into the water and the soil and everywhere from then. And like we said, they're there forever. They move, but they don't break down to something that's not a PFAS. And so then the last part is just if they're recycled. So you've got all these products that then could end up being recycled and they go back through the system and who knows where they are, you know? We're not very good at collecting up things for recycling either. We, you know, we don't recycle a very high percentage of pet bottles, for example, even. Yeah, or big things like carpets that used to be just coated with. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that doesn't get recycled. It gets downcycled into people who are, you know, that are lower income and, and use used products and then they're more PFAS are migrating out at that point in their lifetimes and so the harm just continues. I'll just mention this here though we did a twist podcast on batteries and my friend Lou Madsen has potentially a really great electrolyte that prevents lithium-ion battery fires that is an ionic liquid So as chemists, let's be more creative. Let's come up with different ways of solving the problem. And you interviewed someone, I think you interviewed Joel Tickner talking about alternatives analysis. So if if they're coming up with alternatives, they shouldn't be coming up with PFAS alternatives. You know, they should be coming up with other safer alternatives. And one of the things that we believe, you know, in writing this paper is that the, the essential uses approach by kind of clamping down on the uses of PFAS really will stimulate innovation to come up with safer alternatives for all these places where they thought PFAS would be wonderful. There's a really good story about applying the essential uses approach that it wasn't done by government. It was done by the keen shoe manufacturers. And they became aware of PFAS and products and they were working with people at the Green Science Policy Institute. And that was keen, K-E-E-N? K-E-E-N, yeah, like hiking shoes. Yeah. So they they decided they didn't want to have PFAS in their products if possible, but they didn't know where they were. So the first thing they did was looked at their product line and said, how many, you know, where are PFAS being used in this, that, the other thing, all the different pieces, components of the shoes. And I think they found a couple hundred uses of PFAS that they didn't know about. And the good news is, is that they were able to look at the function of the PFAS for each one of those which is where the essential uses is really applied. It's the function. We're not saying certain chemicals are essential and others aren't. It's, is that function essential? So is, is that waterproofing essential for, I'm just making this up, but the shoelace, you know, does the shoelace need to be waterproof? Maybe not. And so if we don't need that function, we can remove that. So for 70% of the uses of PFAS that they found in their shoes or footwear, they were able to immediately say, we don't even need that function. So we don't need PFAS at all. Then for the other 30%, they had to kind of dig in and say, okay, we need the function, whatever function PFAS are providing, we need it. How can we get it without PFAS? And that took a long process, but it was the essential uses approach in action. And it was really worked beautifully. And the other piece of it is that they're proud of it and they're sharing it with people. Sometimes companies remove toxic chemicals and they don't tell anybody because they don't want you to know it was there. And they're saying, look, this is what we did. This is how we did it. We think everyone should be doing this. That's a lot like the attitude of seventh generation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the best place to find that story? Did they, did they publish it in a journal or do they have like a good, a good short video about it? Or I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like as, from the chemistry side of things, you know, what other uh, types of materials give you non-stick properties or give you give you waterproof you know did they did they find waterproofing materials that degraded you know like okay so you have to oil your shoes but we've figured out that our you know customers are okay with oiling it every so or I'm, I'm curious chemically yeah and I don't know what the I don't know they they haven't shared yet their full story or you know what exactly they use well I, I just went to their, their website and <laughs> they're offering me $10 off on my first order. Um, so, so yes, PFC free, getting forever chemicals out of footwear. And they have a big story about it. 
Is that on the sustainability page? Yep. Or is it right on their homepage? I have to move your image so I can see. We'll put a link in our in the show notes, eh? We we will definitely do that. It is under conservation mm-hmm. blog article. It's a blog article, Jamie. So we'll definitely put a link to that. Great, yeah. great story. Cool. Great idea. Can we come back now to where people are exposed? Because I just want to educate people, our listeners, about exposure, water sources. Yeah. The, the, Your article said 16.5 million people in the U.S. are exposed in their drinking water, yeah. including 6 million with a combined PFOS and PFOA. So those are just two different single chemicals, um, combined concentration over the U.S. EPA's lifetime health advisory of 70 nanograms per liter. So that's like you're getting that concentration on an everyday basis in your drinking water. And that's a lifetime is you're not supposed to get more than that in a lifetime. So that's a big source. Yeah, I, I'm really surprised. That's the one that people are most worried about and that is being addressed in a regulatory sense. They, uh, the Environmental Working Group has a map now of all the places that they've found contaminated drinking water because at first, you know, it's sort of like in Flint, Michigan, there's there's the whole hoopla about lead in the drinking water. Well, there's lead in drinking water all over the place. We just haven't looked for it yet there. And so I think there's PFAS in water all over the place too. They just haven't looked everywhere. Right now, the Environmental Working Group is over 110 million Americans, they think, are exposed to PFAS in their in their drinking water. So it's drinking water is a huge source. There's been some regulation of it. There's some health advisories on the federal level, but states are actually being even more protective with their drinking water, you know, maximum contaminant levels. And um, and so some states are, are going down as low as like eight nanograms per liter and saying that's uh, unsafe. You know, things are changing. You know, that's based on new health effect research. So, Jamie, Southwest Virginia looks pretty clean on their map. I just pulled up their map. That's great. But it's still kind of a horrifying map. I mean, North Carolina is just covered with it. Yeah, well, that's because DuPont and Keymore's are right there, you know, Uh upstream of Wilmington, which is a hot spot. So aside from just being kind of all over, and I'm not even sure what the sources are of it all over, but there are a lot of hotspots where there either is right. chemical manufacturing or product manufacturing or, you know, military bases where they do a lot of training with firefighting foams that used to contain PFAS are hotspots. And so that they, the training uh, is just sort of, sort of a constant source of that it goes into the runoff, it gets into the water. And so they're discovering that that's one way that it's getting into a lot of people's water that they didn't anticipate. Yeah, yeah. I and I want. I wonder if these blank spots on the map are just because nobody's looked. I kind of think so. I had a colleague in North Carolina who was studying PFAS, and she needed a control condition, so she took some water out of her own tap, and what do you know? She found PFAS in it, not expecting it at all. Oh boy! So it's only it's, wherever you look, people are finding it. I want to pull you back to the exposure because we're not done. That's just water. So up here on the screen, fish and shellfish, meat, eggs, and milk, food contact materials, and other consumer products and and house dust. House dust. House dust from electronics because, yeah. Okay, yeah. And carpets and furniture. Yeah. And that's a, people don't realize that it's, it's a concept that it's really hard to wrap your head around. And me being sort of late to the environmental health field, I, I get that. You know, when I was working in AIDS prevention and not thinking about the products in my house being harmful, it took a lot to kind of recognize that your electronics are shedding things into your house that are harmful. Like, what does that mean? You know, what, what do you mean my wires are breaking down? You don't see it, right? So the fact that, you know, that you're putting stain proof on your carpets and on your furniture and that those actually do migrate out and get into the dust and dust is a huge 
problem um, for exposure, especially in terms of kids. You think about your kids crawling around on the floor, they're putting their hands in their mouth all the time, they're chewing on toys. They have higher levels than adults typically of most chemicals because of that. And their bodies aren't really adept at processing chemicals that don't belong there as well as, as adults are. And they're still developing. So their physiological systems are developing and they can go awry when they've got all these chemicals in their body. So it's a huge concern. You know, I come from the field of endocrine disruption. So I know a lot about developmental impacts of chemicals and dust is a, is a source that we, we don't know a lot about, but it's potentially a big source. Okay, Jamie, you wanted to ask about analysis. Yes. So one of the findings that you pointed out in this review was that total organic fluorine in studies of, I think it was drinking water in five U.S. cities, the total organic fluorine found was over twice the amount that would be there if you only accounted for the different fluorinated organic compounds that were individually measured for. So, right. So in other words, this is that whack-a-mole approach, you know, a certain number of uh, fluorinated chemicals are specifically measured mm-hmm. by probably HPLC mass spec or GC mass spec or some, some type of analysis that targets specific peaks for specific compounds. Yeah. And that and that there's this other analytical method for measuring total organic fluorine that showed there's like more than twice as much organic fluorinated stuff in the water as can be accounted individually by by the individual compounds that you're measuring. Did I get that right? You got that exactly right. You know, if you think about there's thousands of PFAS and those targeted measurements of certain PFAS, the ones we know about, the ones we have standards for and analytical techniques to be able to evaluate them, it's a very small subset. So if you're looking for specific PFAS, you'll, you'll find a certain amount of them. But then when they, they have other methods and newer methods where they can look at all the organic fluorine and they find sort of twice as much as what they found when they're looking for individual ones, which just says that there's a lot more out there that we don't know about. And there's also, there's degradation products and, you know, and, and interactions and, you know, there's a lot going on at the chemical level. So Jamie, I'm just going to speculate here. Do you think it's elemental analysis? Well, that's. I was curious. I want. I wondered if Carol, if you could tell us more what they're what they're measuring when they measure total organic fluorine, because I think elemental analysis normally is some type of combustion analysis where they can measure the individual gases from combustion. Right. Um, and then. Yeah, there's there's a variety of different methods that are fairly new, and I'm not that well versed in them. Some of them use gamma rays. It might be atomic. Or x-rays. Combustion is one. Some yeah. kind of spectroscopic method. Because I wondered it, I wondered what this, this measurement of total organic fluorine might also miss. You know, two times, over two times as much as what you can account for is a lot more, but it's but it's not a hundred times, but are we sure that it's not a hundred times? Right. And, you know, what, what is this measurement method? If you want to, okay. So, so that would be something that, that I might chase down. We'll, we'll try it. We'll try it. Um, so you mentioned a couple of other testing methods, screening methods in this paper, extractable organic fluorine. So there's some, probably some sort of, yeah, of solvent-based extraction yeah, exactly. followed by combustion ion chromatography. This is probably what they do to get the total organic fluorine. Yeah. And then particle-induced gamma ray emission. And my question was, how complicated or expensive are those methods? And do you think they'd be suitable for if monitoring these chemicals depended on that type of machine being, being available in regulatory settings, you know, dispersed throughout the country. When I see gamma array, I think, oh, that's a high energy, expensive machine. And so I I was just curious, like how feasible you think these measurement methods are? Yeah. And I I can't answer that about the cost and and the feasibility. I do know that one of the problems in terms of moving forward with them is if the purpose is to identify how much PFAS is being put in certain things, um, there's a problem because there's always like residual PFAS. So there's there, what, what there's a lot of work going on now to determine what is kind of the cutoff level that indicates intentionally added PFAS. 
So there's PFAS that just arise from various manufacturing processes. They don't arise, but they end up being in there and they don't get removed. It's it's back like background for the instrument. Right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so what's that cutoff? And so if you're trying to say, well, here's this, you know, you can't use PFAS more than this level because then that's harmful to people. They don't know what that level is that industry will say, well, we're not even putting PFAS in there specifically. It's just in there. It could come from the water, you know, if, if, if water is part of the process of creating that product that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So Jamie, I have this article on the screen. So they do use combustion ion chromatography and they say that has the lowest detection limit. So it's the most sensitive method is Mm -hmm. combustion ion chromatography, just like we were saying. And then particle induced gamma ray emission spectroscopy or instrumental neutron inactivation analysis and those methods are non-destructive, but the CRM, if there's a high aluminum content, it interferes with the reference material, the certified mm. reference material. So just, just to give you an idea. There's a lot going on developing these methods and trying to you know, perfect them and yeah. make them more feasible. Yeah, because I guess whatever you're doing to, to measure it, you're breaking it down and breaking down carbon fluorine bonded materials <laughs> is like we said difficult so it's probably high energy techniques or so yeah i was curious in the in the breakdown of these materials if you found an effective way of breaking them down say at wastewater treatment plants is fluoride then in the water table an like an issue that we are anticipating as the next issue if we find a way to break these things down. Oh, you mean if you do break down the bond, the mm-hmm. carbon bond, you still have fluor- fluorine. Yeah, fluoride in the water table is is its own issue, I guess. Yeah, I haven't heard. I haven't heard. I haven't thought about that. I know that it feels pretty impossible to clean up whole river systems. You know, you may be able to deal with drinking water. Yeah, but. When landfills are leaching into the soil and whole rivers are contaminated, I don't know, you know, how you're ever going to clean all that up. That's the problem. That's why we have to stop the influx because we don't have good cleanup methods. And on that note, I will say that there's there's some encouraging news on various levels that people are addressing this. You know, toxic chemicals are usually not even very high on most people's radar screen at, at, in the higher levels of government and the executive branch. But currently, the new administration in the U.S. at the federal level is, is, has made a commitment to addressing PFAS specifically, looking at designating it as a hazardous substance, which it's currently not, but that will trigger a variety of things, setting enforceable limits for it in the, in the, through the Safe Drinking Water Act, prioritizing doing toxicity research and ways to clean up contaminated sites, and then also they've been already, even last year, and I forget what year this started, but procurement is one approach that's been really effective. So you look at purchasing. So government is a huge purchaser of things. And if areas of government, like in this instance, it was the Department of Defense says, we're not going to use chlorinated chemicals mm-hmm. in our firefighting foams anymore. They just make, they just, you know, it's just a rule. We're not going, we, we don't have to say they're toxic, whatever. We're just going to say we're not going to use them. That stimulate, that has a huge fallout, you know, because they're such big users of it. And so then people come up with alternatives that are safer and they start using the safer alternatives. So if government makes a commitment to not purchase anything that has PFAS in it, whether it's in food packaging or other things, they can make a big difference. Just the way Keen did, you know, businesses can do the same thing. They can make a commitment and say, we're not going to use them. We actually have on one of our websites um, called PFAS Central, we have a PFAS free page that lists companies that have made us aware that they have made that commitment. And so there are places where you can go and find PFAS free products. I would. I know that you guys are big on trying to point people towards that. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. Yeah. Can you send us that link? Yeah, it's PFAS Central, PFAS Central.org. Okay. I can send it to you, but it's pretty easy. 
and then right on the top bar, it says PFAS free. And it's it's got about 10 categories now, like clothing, car seats and strollers, furniture, personal care products, carpets, but we're building it all the time. So it's growing. Mm, excellent. And we're not making any guarantees. We just give you a link to the company and a link to the policy that is what verifies to us that they're not going to use PFAS in their products. Cool. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. I'd like to talk about the all, the substitute. And so the regrettable substitution is using short chain PFAS. And we can talk about this just briefly, but they're just as bad is the bottom line, right? Yeah. So the idea was that the shorter the chain, the less hazardous it might be in our in biology. The less persistent. Yeah. I think they're saying the less persistent. They turn out to be even more mobile and harder to get out of drinking water. Yeah. And just as persistent. Which you would anticipate. You know, that's the thing. Right. Just based on the chemistry. Those are, they're chemists who are saying this, so they should know better, right? <laughs> they should know better. I think that they would definitely be more mobile because they're going to be more water soluble. They're still going to be resistant to degradation because they're full of CF bonds. But they probably don't have the same effect in membranes because they wouldn't be as likely to partition there, I would think. But maybe it's also that they are taken up by the liver they're finding health effects of them. That's, a, you know, again, to the, the mechanisms, I'm not sure of, but they're yeah. definitely turning out to be toxic as yeah. well. Yeah. 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 Definitely in water. I think what we're going to be seeing is that there are just so many different mechanisms that it's not worth speculating that, that they don't work that well. I also wanted to mention that you said in your article that incineration is typically incomplete because of the strength of the carbon fluorine bond, you get this incomplete combustion unless you take it to really high temperatures. This is the same thing that happens with dioxins, that mm -hmm. if you try to incinerate perchlorinated hydrocarbons, then you get dioxins forming in the incineration effluent, rather than destroying them, you're actually forming them. In order to have complete combustion of dioxins, so I'm just drawing the analogy here, you have to have high temperature, low flow rates, so high residence time, and high turbulence. Mixing. Yeah, high yeah. turbulence. So that's a rare situation. I was actually involved in the Sierra Club fighting some incineration sites way back in graduate school in the late 80s for this reason. So can you say just something about Teflon fever? Do you know what that really is? You mentioned it. So I don't think the Teflon fever is from incomplete incineration. If you like incomplete incineration, I know you took this right from the paper, so hopefully I'm not wrong here. But it sounded like what you were talking about was incineration of, of waste, you know, trying to burn it and get rid of it. Um, and that that is, has to be done at really high temperatures. And if it's not, and it, it rarely is done well enough that it is as effective as we'd like it to be, to be considered to really removing PFAS from the environment. Yeah. Teflon fever. But I think people still get sick from that was the idea. I, my understanding of Teflon fever was that it was from fumes from like Teflon workers, people who work in the Teflon industry. Okay. So not so much coming out of the smokestack as breathing it in Oh. because they're working with it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Thank you for setting me straight. So then I would like to really kind of turn the floor over to you to talk about the science, the, the, sorry, the regulatory approaches and the marketplace approaches, because I, I thought it was really nice the way you laid this out. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about some of them already, the regulatory approaches being the things that are happening at the federal government right now. Another really um, uh exciting thing is that the, in Europe, they have made a very high level commitment to address PFAS as a class 
and they're looking at the essential uses approach and saying, we just, we want to get rid of all non-essential uses of PFAS. So that's really encouraging. And then at the state level also, there's a lot of work on drinking water or getting them out of firefighting foams in certain states where that's really a problem. So there's things happening at the state level, at the federal level in, in Europe. And then there's also was a recent statement by the United Nations, which, you know, is sort of multinational, international, saying that one of the top three problems facing the world today is chemical pollution and that it's exacerbating climate change and um, loss of biodiversity, which are the other two of the three top problems. So again, you know, at that high level, you just want people to say this is a problem. And then that trickles down to being able to actually do things that enforce the removal or the addressing the problem. So that's some of the ways that, you know, regulations can move forward. And then marketplace approaches are kind of like what I said about Keen. Keen was a great story about that. And then yeah. Another great story is that the carpet industry found out about PFAS and made a commitment to that they didn't want PFAS in their products, but they had to find a way to do it and that would still satisfy their customers. And they also did it in this sort of, it's hard to say working with your competitors is kind of a touchy thing, but they did it kind of at the same time. They weren't necessarily working together, but they made a commitment at the same time. So it didn't become a competitive thing and they could get PFAS out of, first they got it out of commercial carpets and then they got it out of residential carpets. Oh, wonderful. So if you have new carpet, it shouldn't have PFAS in it. These are all the major carpet manufacturers in the U.S. Do you know what year they converted? Mm-hmm. Not exactly, but it's it's close to now, like 20, 18, 19 or 20, something like that. So you say these are carpet manufacturers in the U.S. Is the chemical manufacturer actually going on in the U.S. or is that overseas somewhere? Well, PFAS and PFAS have been phased out in the U.S. And so those two PFAS are, which are the legacy ones, you know, we talk about the, they're ones that now they've come up with the alternatives, the replacements. So those two were phased out around 2006, I think, and they're still being made overseas. Yeah, the chemical industry has not stopped making all these other thousands of them in different kinds or anything like that. They're not. And they want to keep making the polymers. Like you said, yes, they're very attached to continuing to make polymers and not let anybody stop them from making polymers. Right. So that's a problem. Can I ask one question about the manufacturers? How many manufacturers are we talking about, you know, as like the big producers of these perfluorinated compounds globally? I can't say for sure, but when I've heard lists, it's about a half a dozen. You know, DuPont, which is now Timors and Solve and 3M. 3M was making them. I'm not sure if they still are. Yeah. Not anymore. Not anymore. They stopped, in, I think, in 2017. Dow, I think, is another big one. Yeah. So DuPont. There's not that many chemical manufacturing sites, but they sell the chemicals to product manufacturers and they're all over. Anybody who's making something out of that chemical is also probably has it in their waste stream. Yep. Okay, so I wanna take the floor now and just talk about two alternatives that I'm very familiar with for different reasons. Solberg firefighting foam. The company Solberg won a presidential green chemistry challenge award And it was quite a while ago, they looked at the short chain PFAS as a substitute compared to the standard long chain PFAS in the firefighting foams. And they found that it wasn't nearly as good. And in in order to use the short chain PFAS, they would have had to use 40 times as much in the foam. Mm. So, so like it just defeats the purpose. The, yeah. the short, the yeah. short chain ones were no good. So they decided to just toss them out, start from scratch, and and just think about it. And this is really remarkable. They make a firefighting foam, and this is firefighting foam used by the military to put out jet fuel fires at military airports. So this is really important. This is a really good product. And they make it with polysaccharides like starch and cellulose. 
And sulfonate detergents, which we use in our households, you know, that's basically dishwashing detergent or laundry detergent, water and a dye. And they actually have better firefighting capabilities than the PFAS, the former PFAS firefighting foam. This is a great product. And I actually talked to the Union of Concerned Scientists about this product when they were fighting to get the military to stop using it in the defense bill that passed last year. So I was, I was really thrilled that I was able to, they, they came to me and said, there are senators who are saying there's no substitute. This is an essential use. And I'm like, no, it's not. Go to your own EPA website and there is an alternative. And they, they got them to look at it. And I think Arlene was also involved in, in that effort. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so then the other one, I don't know that this is the use for it, but I'm really excited about a paper that one of my green chemistry students chose for their presentation. It's a paper to make cellulose oleate, which is a combination of this cellulose, like wood cellulose, and oleic acid, which is a fatty acid. They actually chemically bond it to the surface of the cellulose. And I, they don't say this, but it seems to me this would be an all-natural, waterproof, greaseproof, and probably stain-proof polymer. They show pictures of this. It's, it's like a, a clear polymer. And so I, I don't know how well it'll take dye, but maybe they can dye it first before they coat it with the grease. It just looks like a really interesting product to me in terms of clothing or camping gear, tents and backpacks and stuff like that. So those are the two that came to mind. I'm sure there's a lot more out there. Yeah, with 200 uses, there's probably 200 alternatives. <laughs> so Right. Oh, yeah. And that, the other one I was going to talk about is when I got rid of all my Teflon pans, I went to Griswold Iron Skillets. And if you season them properly, I use olive oil on a really hot skillet, it creates a coating that is nonstick. And if you don't wash it with detergents, it will, you know, you'll be able to just slide those eggs right out of the pan. And then I just wipe it down with paper towels and, and leave that grease coating on them. And it's, it's awesome. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the cast iron pan and you can actually clean it with like coarse kosher salt and a paper towel. So you sure. scrub with that and it doesn't remove that seasoning, but it kind of cleans it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. So practical or sand when you're out camping. <laughs> there, so for, for the non-chemists who listen to our podcast, there is a practical, you know, piece of information. Salt water on your on your cast iron skillets. No, not water. Not not soap. Yeah, just salt. Dry salt. No water, just salt. Just salt. Okay. Dry salt. So dry salt mm -hmm. and not soap on your cast iron. Or sand. Or sand. Or sand. Yeah. Yeah. Except sand works pretty well. Then you might have sand in your food. Is that camping sand? Then you, I think in a pinch. <laughs> I wouldn't use sand in my kitchen, probably. <laughs> Actually, I've found that you can then rinse them with cold water, just plain cold water, and it mm -hmm. doesn't take the coating yeah. off. And you can re-season them if you do something and you have to clean it. Absolutely. I've done that many times. It's, it's great. We have talked about perfluorinated alkyl substances today, and they are what they're used for everything from hamburger wrappers to Gore-Tex rain suits and Teflon coated pans to carpeting, stain resistance. And we talked about regulating PFAS as a class of chemicals, their toxicity and how they are forever chemicals. We've also talked about the analysis 
of PFAS and how can we remove them from the environment? Mostly we need to just stop putting them in there. The different companies that make PFAS and but then all the product manufacturers of which there are hundreds that use these in their products. And then we talked about a few alternatives just in terms of PFAS firefighting foam and iron skillets and uh, grease coated cotton or cellulose. So today I'd like to read from Elemental Haiku by Mary Soon Lee. Fluorine, tantrums, explosions, first step, admit the problem, electron envy. Fluorine is the first of the halogens, the element in group 17 of the periodic table. It is highly reactive. For instance, it reacts explosively with hydrogen. This is because it is the most electronegative element, meaning that its atoms attract electrons most strongly. Wow, what a great time I had talking to you, Carol. Thank you so much for visiting with us on This Week in Sustainability. So this is Twist. And again, I encourage you to listen, tell your friends about it, like us on your favorite podcast place, um, wherever that may be. And uh, my name is Felicia Etzcorn. I edit, post, and write the show notes for these podcasts. My co-host is Jamie Ferguson from Emory & Henry. And our guest today was Carol Kwiatkowski of Green Science Policy Institute. Green Science Policy Institute, right. Greensciencepolicy.org. Yeah, which I have joined at Arlene's insistence. Yeah, definitely a great place, um, great resource for all kinds of information. So thank you again, and we'll say our goodbyes. It was great to visit with you. Likewise. Thank you very much. Yep. Had a great time. Thanks, guys. Jamie, you, you want to give us your tagline? On this podcast, we encourage our listeners to think about it. Don't think too hard, but think about it.